Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Right. There's been a lot of controversy about the leadership of uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz over the Democratic National Committee. Um, one kind of uh, contrast here is that as um, just as Obama pushed to reform the DNC, and uh, he, when, when he became the nominee in 2008, he implemented uh, ethics rules that prevented federal lobbyists from uh, donating to uh, the DNC or the, to the um, party convention. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz has quietly uh, repealed those ethics rules. Now uh, lobbyists can again uh, donate to the party. And uh, last fall, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz actually convened a meeting uh, with a number of lobbyists and um, reportedly uh, handed out a, a menu of options saying that, you know, if you give uh, varying amounts of money, uh, lobbyists can win uh, certain types of, of influence at the convention. So uh, the role of money in politics, which has been a big campaign theme uh, in the presidential primaries, uh, it, it, uh, we're seeing that now come into focus with this uh, tension between Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the Bernie Sanders campaign. speaking with Jen Perelman, who is running against Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida in the CD23 district. Welcome, Jen. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. So I want to talk with you a little bit first about your criminal justice reform platform. I know that you're an attorney. You've worked in criminal defense. I believe you're on the Justice Committee for the Broward County uh, League of Women Voters as well. So walk us through some of your platform for criminal justice reform. So the overall issue, and this is like a major paradigm shift that, that I'm saying is, we need to take the profit motive completely out of the corrections and criminal reform anyway. So the first thing to do is think that the, the fact that we have an industry that profits off of per head per day incarceration mm-hmm. is amoral. Uh, so, so if you if you remove the profit motive, that effect actually would trickle down, per head per person. I think that that in and of itself sets a whole new like age, if you will, of what it is. The other thing is, is I believe in restorative justice. I think we need to be moving towards restorative justice in general as our um, criminal justice system's main theme. And of course, I believe in decriminalizing marijuana, releasing all nonviolent drug offenders, expunging, commuting, everything that we need to do to try to right all that wrong. Great. So I agree with you on that. So Corrective uh, CCA, which is a private prison corp, has given a lot of money in the past to uh, Debbie Washerman Schultz. Uh, One of the things that they do as well as the private prisons is they run the immigration detention centers. And those are also per head per profit. So obviously what you're getting at is that there is a financial motive for uh, mass incarceration because they get paid more money every time they get more people into their jail system for longer terms. And the same is true of the immigration for ICE. So um, back in 2014, 
she had signed a letter endorsing opening up one of these uh, detention centers in Florida and Broward County. That ended up not happening. I think the letter was co-signed by a Republican as well. But obviously there was quid pro quo going on there. Um, What are your thoughts on ICE, these detention centers, and Debbie's history of taking money from these uh, private corporations that do prisons? Um, Well, you know, first, I I detest people taking money from any corporation. So let's, like, our representatives shouldn't be taking any corporate money whatsoever of any industry. But when you're looking at an industry whose sole purpose is to incarcerate to profit it's you have to assume that there is a lot of impropriety there in terms of how that affects our um prosecutions our sentencings our our probation system like everything and even if you look outside of the amount of people that are incarcerated the amount of people that are within our correction system that pay absorbent fees every month for the privilege of being on probation and all of this is is, is money-making. This is revenue stream. But, you know, she did look at putting a facility kind of close to where I am and the residents, you know, weren't having it and they shut that down. And she is still not saying anything against the concept of for-profit incarceration. And it's really no different for ICE using it other than it's infinitely easier for them to round people up. You know, you don't have yeah. to go through this, this yeah. system in terms of filing charges, arresting, prosecuting. So it's almost like easier pickings to round up as many uh, immigrants as possible and profit off of them. And it's not just, by the way, the facilities. It's all these independent contractors who provide the security, the transportation, the all of these services, the, the meal services that there are. There are companies whose sole purpose has been built off of profiting off of incarceration. Yeah. So yeah. that has to stop. I mean, the, and once we eliminate that, I do think you're still going to have a certain amount of um, racism and over policing and those issues. Even if there was no profit motive, you're still, I think, going to have some degree of that. But it is the first step in the direction that we need to go. Yeah, I agree with you. So let me ask you this. In 2018, the Florida Democratic Party actually banned, they had a resolution that banned uh, any of their candidates taking money from private prison corporations. I know that there was some resistance from the Clinton faction of the wing, but it managed to get passed. So do you think it's the case that she's still getting money from these folks? I mean, because you could have some of these uh, lobbyist bundlers that take money from various sources and then hand them out to candidates. And if if that's what's happening, we would really be able to track that through FEC reporting. I, you know, I would I don't know. I'm not going to claim that she's doing that. I'm not I mean, you know, I don't want to be hit with any sort of slander lawsuit (laughs) or anything like that. But when you look at where she gets her money from, there are an inordinate amount of law firms, private holding things, like things with names that you don't know. And the problem with that is, is it gives the appearance of this, this sort of veil of secrecy. Like why? And that's what you have to wonder. And you have to wonder who those law firms are representing. Right. And now it's, it's just creating one more trail for us to sort of follow, one more leg of the trail. So I don't know if she is currently taking money from the for-profit prison industry. But is it possible that she's some of those groups get money from the contractors that are providing things and want to keep that industry going? It could. Who knows? Yeah, that's the problem. We don't know. We don't know. It's dark money. We don't know. And, and the implicit quid pro quo is there. Obviously, something's going on. 
Um, well, let, let me ask you this. Where do you stand on, on money and politics in general? I know you said that we shouldn't take money from any corporations, and I agree with you on that. But what about overturning Citizens United? There is a movement out in the United States where they're looking to add an amendment to the Constitution to repeal Citizens United. Is that something that you support? Absolutely. I've supported both of those movements. So there's the movement that is pushing to overturn Citizens United, and they're going about it in a different way. And then there's right. also the group that's going about it, trying to get all the state legislatures to right. sign on. American Promise. So, right. I, I have um, signed on to both of those. So I have this sort of theory that if you throw enough stuff against the wall, something's going to stick. Right, like right, this right. needs to be attacked from every angle. And Citizens United, truthfully, was really just the final nail in the coffin. I mean, we really already had a very significant problem with um, our corporate takeover in this country and the money in our politics. Personally, I support publicly financed elections. I support three-month election cycles. I find the amount of money that I'm having to raise and waste to do this circus. And when I watch the things like the convention, that's offensive to me. There are people that cannot afford to eat. I am having to raise money to spend almost two years to be able to do this because of the way they have this machine set up. And so it keeps regular people from participating, which is unacceptable. And what it's doing is just so wasteful again, there's private contractors and people that make money in the consulting industry and all these things that, thr- whether it's even the event planners for the convention, there is this, it, it's treated as a profit situation and it's absurd. Yeah. So I think all private money should yeah. be out, but at a minimum, we need to ban corporate donations and corporate PAC money. I mean, it's one thing if it's individual citizens, it shouldn't right. be necessary. But it's at least then it's like I always tell people I'll check with my donors. I have about 7000 donors. And so when you ask me if I'm into something, I'll say, let me let me get with my donors. I'll get back with you. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, So do you think we should go return back to the old 19 early 1970s when we had the FEC rules pre Buckley v. Vallejo? Like, is that where you would see this going? Well, I think that again, that would be better than where we are now. And again, I completely support publicly financed elections. So anything that's going to peel back the amount of impropriety and what it is is really bribery. Yeah, I mean, it's pr- that's essentially, <laughs> I mean, what we're looking, we could call it campaign finance reform and all this, yeah. stuff, but it's, we're just wanting to stop the bribery. That's all. We're just wanting to stop the bribery. But yeah, pu- to me, publicly financed elections, it would bring us back to what it would have been like when we were in high school and you ran for student government and everybody had $100 and you had to do whatever you had to do within your $100. Yeah. Okay, so that's how this needs to be. I agree. Somebody gets the requisite amount of signatures and you should have to work for that. I don't, I don't have a problem with people having to go out on campus and collect signatures right. or you know what it takes. But once you get that, then you should be allocated the same amount of money as every other candidate. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, here's the added benefit of that, too. When you have that much engagement coming from a campaign, you have a lot more volunteers out there willing to make calls for you, hit uh, hit the pavement and knock on doors. And that kind of voter enthusiasm is how you win an election. So I would think that it's much more beneficial than some of the astroturfing that we've, we've been seeing from some of these campaigns. Um. Let me ask if you've you. Ever thought about, if you've ever thought about this, and I'm sorry to throw this out no, there because right. I've thought about it recently. It's like a chicken and an egg thing. So, for example, let's say that Debbie Wasserman Schultz 
decided she's not a corporate money. She's going to just do it on people power. Going to do that, right? How would she get individual donations? Do you think there's a lot of regular people? No, no, no. But so, so that's the other way of staying in power because they appeal to the people. So it's, that's what I mean. It's like a chicken and an egg thing for them. I don't disagree. Uh, But here's the thing that the establishment Democrats need to understand. They've exchanged one for the other. They're not going to get the individual donations because they've already had a history of taking corporate money and legislating on behalf of those folks that they're getting money from. The quid pro quo is is absolutely clear. So nobody that's interested in, in donating money to a politician or to a candidate wants that kind of a candidate. They want the opposite. They want somebody that's actually going to legislate on behalf of their needs. And, and this is how far gone our democracy. I think the entire system is rotten to the core and has been for quite some time. Um, so I want to ask you specifically about Debbie Washerman Saltz because she's also got some very right wing foreign policy things going on. Um, I'm thinking specifically back in November, uh, there was an announcement that she was doing with another Republican about supporting the Venezuela coup. Code Pink founder and longtime peace activist Medea Benjamin was threatened with arrest in Washington, D.C. Wednesday and accused of assaulting a sitting Congress member after. And one of the activists, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink, was there protesting. She was holding up a sign, you know, not to support the coup, et cetera. And as always with these protests, there was a uh, contingency of right wing Venezuelan folks there that obviously do support the coup. So I think people need to understand there's two things at play. We have a history in this country of going into these other countries in Central America, South America, the Middle East. We have overturned uh, democratically elected governments. Generally, they've been left-wing and they've been for workers' rights. And we've done so in the name of protecting empire, right? Protecting corporations. None of this has to do with installing democracy or freedom abroad. That's just a line they've been selling the American public. So I think Venezuela is no different, right? Maduro um, was reelected. It was fair and square. For us to say that this other guy is the interim president and all this hogwash is got nothing to do except us protecting our interests abroad, including Venezuela's oil, right? So we can get into all the nests and bolts of that. But what really bothered me about this was when Medea was being manhandled by these right-wingers, she got pushed into Debbie Washman Schultz. And you can see this clearly in the video. And Debbie, instead of realizing what was happening, starts calling the police saying, I'm being I'm being assaulted. I'm being assaulted, which was totally not true. The D.C. uh, police show up at the house of Medea and they tried to get her to turn herself in as as a rest, et cetera, as this whole thing played out. We're there. Um, We were told that there was assault that occurred on that in the triangle. I was being assaulted. We have video footage of it. I was being assaulted. There was a, you know that crowd, the Venezuela, you know me. You know me all the time. I don't assault anybody. I'm a peaceful person. I was being pulled and I was trying to stop from being thrown onto the ground. And that's what happened. But I was being assaulted. I was being uh, pulled by these big guys behind me. And we have all of this on footage. Okay. So it's allegations that there was a member of Congress says that you assaulted her. I did not assault her. And then, uh, so... Would you be willing to come with us? Well, wh- what does that mean? That means you'd be placed in a 
placed under arrest and then and or we're going to get a warrant for you. So um, it was really awful because it was very authoritarian in the way she acted, right? Very, I want to say she's like acting like a Karen. She is Karen, though. She's, she's calling the manager, right? But I'm more, I'm more disturbed by the fact that she's siding with, with right-wingers on this foreign policy in a situation that's where it's clearly, um, it's clear to me that this is not something a Democrat should be getting behind. So talk with me a little bit about what you feel about that situation, how it played out in the district, whether people are aware of it and whether it will affect their opinion of her, and then also a little bit about your foreign policy positions in Venezuela. So it's interesting because I actually saw Medea shortly after thereafter that incident, like a oh, few okay. weeks later, rally down here. And it's it's just so interesting to me because Medea Benjamin probably weighs like what, 90 pounds weight? Yeah, she's tiny. You know, like, right. And she is by definition a peace activist. So it's funny for somebody to call the Capitol Police and, and sick them on Medea Benjamin. It's it, it's like, I don't know, like calling the police on a pope or something. Like it's yeah. just ludicrous. So, so they, they show up and she actually had video footage from the other angle that showed how she was being pulled. And quite honestly, I don't even think that was her touching Debbie, but what I think it really goes to show you, and it isn't just Debbie, it's a lot of these people. They really have this feeling of entitlement and like that they're on a pedestal and that how dare someone do this to me, even if it was sort of a tussle or whatever. And just somehow that you're so much better than that you're going to sick your police force on people. It's yeah, we've yeah. got to get out of this, this mindset of that these people are leaders. They're, it's not called the house of leaders. These are our employees. They work for us. That's now, right. I'm not saying that she didn't get knocked over and what happened. And maybe she felt scared or threatened in that moment. That is, I don't know. But the fact that afterwards... When she was perfectly fine and nothing had happened, that the Capitol Police were still dispatched to Medea Benjamin's house is sort of like a show of threat, really, just intimidation. It speaks volumes to me. Yeah, really, it really does. And as far as the foreign policy on that goes, clearly, um, as a progressive, I'm vehemently opposed to um, our intervention in Venezuela and our sanctions and everything we've been doing to hurt that country so that we could basically get their oil. Um, and I, so all of any policy that is against the people of Venezuela is nothing I'm going to support. So the fact that we're parading around an individual and pretending that he's the president of Venezuela yeah. is it, when, by the way, the rest of the world, uh, disagrees with that. Uh, it's just, it's, it's laughable. And, and the fact that my representative is supportive of that, it's almost, it's almost bizarro, but I can tell you a big part of that is her base of Venezuelan support in our district tends to be very white, wealthy Venezuelans. Okay, there it is. And we call the, and it's funny because around here, the nickname of Weston, which is an area in my district, the town in my district, is we call it Westonzuela. And that is a very big base for her. They tend to be more conservative. They're wealthy. They're more affluent. And so what I tell people is, yes, there is a contingency of Venezuelans that do support overthrowing Maduro. Absolutely, they do. They do because they're affluent. They're part of the aristocracy. So they have a bonded interest with American corporations. They're exploiting the working class. Of course. And so that is a very, those people in terms of my district, in my district specifically, that is the bulk 
of our Venezuelan voting bloc. So that is also what she's playing to. I see. That makes sense to me now because I was curious about that. You know, and also, what, two weeks ago, we got caught cooing in Venezuela. So the two guys that work for Silvercorp, this is an organization that was founded by an ex-Green Beret, right? It's a private security, private intelligence firm. You know, they said that Trump knew about them doing this. Um, Trump has denied it. I doubt that that's true. I'm sure Mike Pompeo did know. And, you know, they were caught. They were caught trying to infiltrate the country through Colombia. So we are continuing to do this as we speak. And it's amazing to me that after so many decades of this, I mean, you could really sort of pinpoint, I think, Iran as the start when we overturned... um, Mossadegh. Yeah, thank you. And and installed the Shah. And what did we give like 23, 24% of the oil fees, fields to American corporations for helping uh, the Shah out to do that. So a lot of people should realize that none of this is conspiracy theory. This is what we do. We are an empire. We do things abroad that are harmful to other other folks. And then we want to turn around and complain about the fact that we have refugees at our borders. Well, I hate to tell you folks, but a lot of the reasons we have refugees at the border is because we've helped create these uh, situations abroad. And at some point, we're going to have to come to terms with that. You know, and obviously being in South Florida, I know you're in Southern California, we have large immigrant populations. And so we, we see that influx of people that are desperately seeking asylum and seeking a better life for their families. And we are largely responsible for most of what's going on, if not all of what's going on in Latin America. And you talk about the criminal elements and the drug cartels and the things that are going on that we have propped up, that we have supported. Um, our biggest, the biggest source of drugs is Colombia, right? Yeah. Not Venezuela. But yet we we accuse uh, yeah. Venezuela of being a source of the drug trafficking problem when in fact that's completely inaccurate. I would actually recommend anybody watching this, if you have any interest at all, watch Max Blumenthal's interview with Maduro. It yeah. was done quite well. Um, and I'm not saying that he's lovable character either. Uh, he's not a great guy. I'm sure that, you know, there's lots of people in his country that don't like him. But first, that's not our business. But I think that it's also important just to see, yeah, all leaders are kind of, there's a little, there's an authoritarian element for sure. But he's no different than what we have here. I think, I, I just think that's very telling. And I I very much appreciated that. And of course, we would never present that interview on our mainstream networks. We would never show an interview with Maduro. No, no. And we should, you know, and of course, I think back to that moment when Mike Pompeo, like, it's so laughable, I can't even get it out with a straight face, where Mike Pompeo said Cuba was the empire supporting Venezuela. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) Cuba has a 1950s economy and uh, like... Right. It's ludicrous. Like, I mean, and he says this with a straight face and nobody with any modicum of intelligence is going to buy that. It's like ridiculous. Yeah. Well, look, it works for the Russia gate. It works for them to scare everybody about the Russians whose I think their economy is the size of Michigan's. So it's just it's really and I always ask people when they're othering and they're doing that. I always say I'm like, what's their end game? Yeah. What, what, what's their end game? Are they going to like be washing up on the shores with weapons? Are they, are they storming the Capitol? Right, like right. What, what's the end game here? And right. it's, it's so illogical. It is. It's entirely illogical. So, well, you know, and in Florida, you have a lot of uh, Cuban immigrants that are there. And I would imagine there's this, there's a tension there because a lot of the Cuban I- immigrants 
our right wingers, they are the ones that lost power in the class war, right? They were profiting off of the cheap labor because they were, again, the same thing with Venezuela. They were working with American corporations to exploit, you know, the the region. So, and then you have the poor uh, Cubans that are, you know, they might have benefited from from the regime change in some ways, but maybe they're not authoritarian. I mean, there's there's a way to have a left wing government that's not authoritarian, and I think that's what people need to understand. If we have a problem with anything that these countries are engaging in, it's not the socialism aspect of the conversation. It's the authoritarian aspect. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. I tell people they don't understand. Like you're using the term of an economic system to describe a government. That's not that's not how it works. But that, again, there you go as to how ignorant we are. You know, I've had people call me a communist for supporting. So the level of ignorance amongst our electorate is extremely concerning. It is. you it's, know, but it's our fault. This is what they've been spoon fed. I mean, you can look at all of the Russia hysteria that came out from McCarthyism going forward. There's a reason that people believe socialism is authoritarian only or that it's bad. And when people say like, well, Sweden's not a socialist country. And my family's from Malmo. I'm from Sweden. I'm like, well, yes, it is. It's it's a social democracy. There are forms of non-status socialism. Anarcho-socialism is an actual thing, folks. A co-op is a form of socialism, right? It's about- it's about the democracy owning the means of production at, at the very minimal base of it, right? But we've been told otherwise. We've been told that socialism evil is evil. It's always a, it's a command economy. It's always authoritarianism. You want to be like Venezuela. You're going to be like Venezuela. <laughs> and there's some really good aspects of both Cuba and Venezuela. And, and they have health care. Exactly. So. They have better health care in some areas than we do, which is sort of shocking when you think about it. Um. So I think there's a way of looking at these things and these things aren't mutually exclusive, although some folks want to say that they are. And there's it's just gotten to the point where you can't have a nuanced conversation about it, which is unfortunate because it's not this serves one group of people in the United States, the plutonomy and only them. So we need to stop doing that. Absolutely. And that's how look, most conversations in this country are what the oligarchy allows us to have as conversations by what they offer us as information. I will say amongst the Cuban community is it's also pretty divided generationally, right? Like, Uh, so you do have, you do have the children, grandchildren, great grandchildren coming up that are, are more progressive. And they, I am noticing an increase in Cuban, blue Cubans, which is, which is nice, but yeah, you still have that very old school mentality. It goes back to Castro. It goes back and it's, it's very much an indoctrination of thought. So depending on the the person's ability to have gotten information outside of that community, that determines how much we've, you know, made progress in terms of, you know, that line of thinking. Yeah, 100% agree with you. A lot of these differences are age-related. The younger generations seem to have no problem embracing the, the concept of a socialist government. It doesn't bother them, which I think is good because I, you know, look, as somebody that studied philosophy too, I... I look at these words and I know that they have distinct meanings in academia. And so they don't, they don't really freak me out. But I will say this before I went to college and when I was a teenager growing up, I was exposed to a lot of that thinking and I was told all of those things. I mean, I was in high school in the 80s during, you know, the Reagan years. So if you turn you on and the I news. Are the same age. Yeah. You and I are the exact same age. Okay. So you turn on the news and you would get this. I mean, the Iran Contra stuff. Are you kidding me? The Contras are the good guys. It wasn't until I went to college and really started reading and learning and shedding that indoctrination that I realized, oh my God, the Contras are total pieces of shit. <laughs> but well, I'm, I'm a believer. You know what I'm saying? 
I believe that Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States should be required high school reading. So that, yeah. and quite honestly, that in and of itself would make a huge difference. I Just agree. History from the perspective of the conquered. It's not complicated to do. We have the information. Yeah. 100%. We just don't like to shine that ugly light on ourselves. It doesn't serve empire. Right. So, I mean, but this is why you and I do what we do, right? Because we know that the first step of changing that is just to get more information out there into the public. And I think, and I think it is changing. I think people are having their minds open and they're exposed to these various viewpoints and they're kind of going like, what was I thinking, right? It's, it's possible. It's happening. So I have hope. <laughs> I, I, I want to also talk to you about the War Powers Act. I know that's something that you support. This would be ending the Saudi-led war against the Yemen folks. Uh, how is this still going on? Because nobody's paying attention because nobody cares about Yemen. Yemen is like, to me, I've always equated it. It's sort of like the Haiti of the Middle East. I think it is the poorest country over there. And and um, as a result, it sort of gets the most mistreated and they're the most expendable. And well, and anything we can do to support Saudi, you know, God, we'll do anything. Yeah. Can, let's talk so, about that for a second. Yeah. Why is Saudi Arabia our ally? They are not our ally. They are one of the worst offenders for human rights violations in the world. They were definitely part of the 9-11 attack. I mean, we can go down the list of problems. I, and so the only thing that makes sense to me is that the oil relationship, that it's financial and that the United States of America is willing to ignore everything else for this one reason. It's, it's the oil, it's the petrol dollar, right? So, and what's, what's interesting is, and um, actually Kim Iverson did this great bit about this where she went back and looked at all the countries that we seem to think need regime change. And ironically, they're all countries that have been trying to get away from the petrodollar. So in other words, we would not have the world currency right. domination over the oil industry, right? It would no longer be according to the American dollar. And that's what Iran is trying to do. That's what Venezuela is trying to do. Right. All, so, so Saudi Arabia is basically, they're in bed with us in terms of that. Yeah, and, 100%. So that's really what it is, is it's, it's, it's us versus them. It's, it's Saudi Arabia, Israel and us versus basically China, you know, Brazil or Venezuela, like all these countries that are trying to get out right. from under our thumb. And so that's really what it is with Saudi Arabia. And they're very, very benef beneficiary, benef beneficial to us in a corporate sense, in a yeah. financial sense to the people that are in charge. And so they want help killing, you know, poor Yemenis, then we're going to do we that by George. We're it's disgusting. You know, and I, I also in the area of Israel, I would say without equivocation, what really angers me about that situation is I am so fucking tired of all of these folks saying they, they do it because of Jewish people or they care about the Jewish people when they don't. The only reason that they have these relationships with Saudi Arabia, the United States, Israel, is because of the location of Israel. This is entirely geopolitical. If of Israel course. was located in the middle of Africa, nobody would give two shits because a lot of the folks that really support the state of Israel are also very anti-Semitic. I mean, we have to be well, very careful. you're talking about, yeah, like the religious leaders and yeah. a lot of the Oh, yes. But they, they need the Jewish people to be in Israel in order right. for the to occur it's I so twisted <laughs> but so if they, the jewish people don't convert to christianity then they're going to burn in hell i mean so but none of this has anything to do with loving jewish people so i'm so sick of them saying that it does well they're just playing to that and getting that support it's sort of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend they're just going to find whatever right. support they 
stand to further. I often say the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. (laughs) Well, you know, before campaigning, I would have thought that, but you never know what kind of bedfellows you meet and uh, things that happen on this road. All right. So the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend. Like, like, you know, like I I specifically think of the relationship with Richard Spencer and uh, Yair, uh, Netanyahu, sorry, Netanyahu's son, Yair. Like, that to me is so, like, are you kidding me, Yair? That guy hates you. They have similar goals. They do. But you know what? It's, to me, it speaks infinitely more volumes about Bibi Netanyahu than it does about Richard Spencer. So Yeah, yeah, I agree with you there, 100%. Like, he should know better. But here we are. Um, What other areas of foreign policy are a concern to you that we haven't touched on? Well, I mean, overall, when you bring up things like the War Powers Act, I mean, why are we not using that everywhere? Why are we just... Fair. I didn't understand why we were specific. I mean, look, any any progress is good progress. So if, if Bernie thought that by pushing that, we could at least stop abusing and committing a genocide in Yemen, great. But we should be initiating that for all of the wars that we're in. I believe we're currently drone bombing like seven or eight countries. Yeah, right we are. Now. Eight. Right. Eight. Okay, so why are why are we allowed to do that? And my understanding is under even Obama's administration, we had like a 90 plus percent civilian casualty yeah. rate. Oh, but don't even get me started. It's not, disgusting. We're not good at it. We're not good at this. No, no, right? no. If you have that kind of percentage civilian casualty rate, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's right. Um, I believe in getting out of out of all of these wars. I, I don't think we need to be involved in any of this. I think we need to be not having sanctions against the people of Iran and Venezuela. Um but, you know, this all goes down to the empire and how we view people and countries as pawns in like this game of taking over. It's like Stratego. Right. And yeah. And that's and that's just it's a, we need a whole paradigm shift into how we see human beings and what and the kind of life that people are entitled to. I do not want most of my tax dollars going to killing poor Yemeni. That's not what I want my money to go for. So, you know, it, it's just a matter of reprioritizing and having people that understand that what we need to be doing is healing our collective and not invading other people's collectives. And that might, I think that we just need to reprioritize. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you could quite literally cut the Pentagon budget in half and there'd be plenty of money for making war. It's absolutely outrageous. We're, we're only, it's just this self perpetuating machine that's just printing dollars for the people involved in it and i don't know how you roll it back i mean eisenhower warned us about this decades ago you know and here we are we didn't we didn't take his warning to heed well no kennedy kennedy tried to stop it see how that worked out yeah fair so yeah the and this whole idea that the drone bomb is surgical that it's precise is totally false most of these drone bombs do not hit their targets they kill civilians. There's a reason these people hate us. We are creating more terrorism abroad, abroad, not less. And I think just to hit on the Obama thing, the one thing that he did that I'm still appalled to and will never forgive him for is him drone bombing an American citizen over there. It's bad enough that they thought that other folks didn't have a writ to habeas corpus, but to tell me that an American citizen does not, that's not going to fly with me. That to there's me was of, there's it's it's all kinds of wrong. I saw this yeah. I saw video footage and clips of of a journalist that was out in Yemen and just like going and talking to people and I literally they are liter and I hate people that always use the word literally but literally they are living in rubble. Yeah. They have caves built into the ground out of rubble 
so that every time they hear the, 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 the sounds, the noises coming, the planes coming, the bombs coming, they can run and hide in the rubble. And this is how parents are forced to take, this is what, how their children, I, you know, it's, these are just people trying to get from point A to point B with their kids in one piece. These are not the enemy of anybody. Exactly. No, they're not. Sure. It's disgusting. And all of this has to do with making money. This is, it's so immoral. I can't even wrap my head around it. And it's unfortunate that not every American knows this. Every American needs to know what's going on over there. And it's not getting reported enough. Well, they don't want us to know this. Right. You know, that's, that came along with um, the Telecommunications Act in 96 that allowed uh, five right. companies to own our entire media. And so therefore now not only does empire get to exist, it gets to exist without the fourth estate watchdog. That's right. So, I call the fourth estate, you'll love this, Jen. I call the fourth estate the fourth fixer-upper. <laughs> I have hashtag RIP fourth estate. Um, It's it's sad. So really between the nineties and now it's not just that it's been a corporate takeover, but it's been a blackout of the information. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's just so cringe. I can't even, it's very upsetting to me because, you know, as somebody that's been working in journalism, you know, for a long time, I started in the nineties. I worked for a, a local news station here in LA I've seen this digression. I mean, it was just starting to get that way, you know, back when I was in my 20s. And now it's like, I mean, half of what they say in cable news is just totally bullshit. Well, the difference is, and even when we were in high school back in those days, and I was a journalism student too. I went to college for journalism and I was on the school newspaper. And that was But even back in those days, when you had people like Dan Rather and um, Peter Jennings and those guys, yeah, they had an establishment twist, but the truth is they were journalists. Right. These were people that at one point in their careers were out in the field reporting on stories. So they weren't just a talking head reading corporate talking points. That's they right. actually did do reporting. Yeah. And so now we don't have that. I mean, most of the people that are sitting on those shows are literally talking heads. And yeah. they are and they are just repeating what they're allowed to repeat. And it's unfortunate. So there are real journalists. They're just not on those shows. No. And as Chomsky would say, they're not being hired by those shows on purpose, right? No, they've been fired. They've been all fired from those shows. Or they've been fired and they're all working at RT now and being called Russiagators. (laughs) I like RT. I do too. I mean, every time somebody gets all Russiagate-y about it, I'm like, look, the reality is, is a lot of the journalists that are on RT now that used to be on MSNBC and what have you, have more independence over there. Like, that's how twisted our world is. Well, once you know that somebody is fired for speaking out against a war, yeah, that that is blatant. I that's agree. not even, I mean, Phil Donahue was fired for speaking out against the war. Ed Schultz. Um, Ed Schultz got fired for covering Bernie Sanders. Exactly. I mean, when you start seeing stuff like that, it's, you know, they're not legitimate news sources. That's right. I actually, I can't remember which one it was. I got into a, a Twitter beef with one of these MSNBC guys uh, seven or eight months ago. And I finally, and he was saying something that was co- just completely unfactual, like verifiably false. Like, what is this guy thinking saying this stuff publicly? And so I said to him, I'm like, where's your commitment to veracity? You're a journalist. He actually responded to me. That's where you're wrong. I'm not a journalist. I was like, Yep. So I I quote tweeted him. You'll love this, Jen. I quote tweeted him and I said, MSNBC, come pick up your trash. (laughs) But that him, the quote of him saying, I am not a journalist, that that would make really good like advertising material for for somebody to take him down. I don't even know. Like, that's just brilliant. I'm not a journalist. 
journalist. I just work here. I just work for a news organization, but I'm not a journalist. That's pretty much what he was saying. And But the fact that he even said it publicly without realizing how bad it was just says everything to, about, to me about how far gone our corporate news uh, organizations are. Like he didn't yeah, even fear, he had no fear of saying that. Like his boss wasn't going to fire him for it, which is just outrageous. Well, they don't want journalists. Exactly. That's where they, we're at, I guess. Yeah, they don't want journalists. But I always, I do feel encouraged by the amount of independent journalists that I know of that are out there, um, like Max and people that are still reporting. Um, and I, and that's where I get information. You know, and it's and it's it would be easier if my nice networks would put it together in nice little packages for me so I didn't have to spend hours and hours researching things. But we're just not that fortunate anymore. Yeah, no, it's crazy that this is where we are. And and what we need, in my opinion, is some sort of a new news platform that has the uh, ability to reach a a broader audience. I don't think YouTube's enough. It's especially since they have the ability to silence folks. Your censorship. Yeah, I mean, like a K, I don't know, like a, a non, like an actual news organization that is a cable news, or, but it's actually news. It's not corporate owned. It's like their entire uh, reason for existence would be to report news. Like we don't have that right now, which is outrageous. I know, you know, and it's interesting because I know Jordan has spoken about it several yeah. times. Jordan Sheraton, yeah. Yeah, about- we, Him and I talk about it all the time. It's yeah, like a priority. And, and the thing is, is that if- I think what prohibits that from happening is egos. You know, it's all the egos get in the way because well, that's everybody- a problem too. I don't disagree with you there. Money, though, but money. I think money. all of these people should get together and have a, a, a platform where the technology is is ours in a way that it can't be censored by Big Brother. Exactly. And that- can't happen until it's a big conglomeration of people coming together to do that. So, I agree. And it's not going to happen on YouTube. I, I, I want more people no, to realize that to YouTube is not your friend. We need a whole set. It needs to be its whole own platform. Yeah. And, Google and it ain't needs- it. Google's part of the problem, folks. Like it's not, which is why I don't do my show on YouTube. Fuck it. I'm not doing it. Um, so I want to talk with you about reparations. I know that's something you you support, which is unusual. Most politicians aren't willing to come out and discuss this, let alone support this and have a platform based on it. So good for you. Um, I actually wrote about reparations when I was doing my master's thesis back in the early 2000s. I see this, I know a lot of the right-wingers kind of like, you know, they want to sow division. They don't want to do this because it would cost money, but they tend to make it, try to make an argument about, well, we're just taking money from the white people and we're just giving it to the black people. And that's not even remotely what this is about. This is about a government's failure, right? The government promised to protect the people it freed and it did not do that. And instead it supported things that only kept slavery continuing on, whether it was Jim Crow, whether it's redlining mortgages. There's there's a case history here. So this is about a government failing in its obligations. Um, and I don't think that has to even be related to so, you know, when they when they feed the, the, the uh, discourse and they say, well, it's the transfer of wealth, you, what you end up seeing is a lot of white folks saying, well, my family wasn't here before. Why should I pay for that? That's just, again, it's just feeding that same discourse, right? It, and it's got nothing to do with that. It's the failure of government. So I'm curious to know what you base your legal arguments on since you're an attorney and how you see us coming up with a way of actually getting reparation, reparations to happen. Um, have you looked at the UN plan? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. So my thoughts on reparate, well, for, it's funny when you first started this, you said you don't hear politicians talking about that. And it's come out of politicians. So it works. Well, that- it works. <laughs> but 
Um, there you go. It, this, <laughs> it isn't. It, it isn't about fairness. It's about justice, and that that justice right. um, at every level is what is wh who I am. Like I, I can't. I love when Cornell West says justice is what love looks like in public. Yeah. And that that to me is what reparations is about. This isn't about taking from people who, and tracing who did what to whom. Right. My family, I can assure you, my family were Jews fleeing the pogroms in Russia. They weren't here at that time. Right. They owned nobody. They were the they were the, they were the owned. So I don't have a personal feeling of guilt or responsibility for what has happened. However, there is not a person in this country that is not a beneficiary of the system. Oh, 100%. Yeah. That is correct. the system that is in that is completely based on genocide, apartheid, and slavery, okay? And and we when the war ended, there was a promise made to the freed blacks, right? What was it 40 40 acres and a mule or yeah. I don't know, whatever it is. And so that not only did that not happen, but basically we just re-enslaved people that were slaves, calling it different things, calling it uh, uh, indentured servitude or their sharecroppers or, and these are people that you can free someone, but if they don't have a dollar to their name, where are they going? So, so that's not really free. Free no. is not free if you have nowhere to go and you can't live. Okay. No. So I, I reject completely anybody who ever says I wasn't here, it wasn't me, because I assure you it wasn't me and it wasn't anybody in my family. And yet I live in this country and I benefit off the backs of those people just every single day of my life. Every road that you drive on, everything that you do is on the backs of people that were not compensated for their work. And this isn't about taking money from white people. And quite honestly, the money's going to come from black people too. Yeah, They pay their taxes. That's this right. is a this isn't a, a give a giveaway. This is us allocating our resources to make people to, to create justice. Yeah. This isn't even about equality. It's about equity. Right. right. So I am not going to I do not need to further help people that are already up where they need to be. The goal is to get everybody up to where they need to be. And clearly most of the communities that we're speaking about are not at an equal starting point to us. No. And the systemic racism that came from slavery. The truth is, is it isn't even just about slavery at this point. I mean, that, no. it, this, is, this is still happening now. Yeah. We still have kids. Breonna Taylor just got shot in her, in her own apartment. And I, I would dare somebody to find me a case of that happening to a white person. No, no, it's it's totally driven by race. It's it's that is it. I don't see how anyone can say it's not. I know there are people out there saying that, but it's it, come on, it's ridiculous. Of course, it's racism. I just know personally that, and and my thoughts on reparations are not concrete in terms of what exactly that is. And I've heard a lot of different thoughts on this. Yeah. I like Marianne Williamson's proposal that's on her issues page, and it, and it's similar to other things I've heard, where essentially you're creating an endowment and a trust fund to be completely overseen by the people within that community and allocating it to whole communities to make them whole. So I think that goes towards small business loans, towards building up um, infrastructure in the black communities, towards uh, investing in proper uh, police reconditioning. To There is a myriad of things, uh, employment opportunities, whatever it is where we need to allocate money to bring whole communities and make them whole. And that's what it's about now. And I am very open to different suggestions on how to do that and the best ways to do that. 
But um, yeah, I'm kind of done arguing about that we need to do that. Yeah. I'm, 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 that's like arguing about climate crisis or even right. single payer health care. I'm just done. I, I, I can't debate this with people anymore. It just has to happen. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I don't know. I don't know what what more it would take to make it happen, but it seems to me that even now is still a controversial um, conversation, and and it shouldn't be. It's a controversial conversation on the left, not just on the right. So I, no, I was, there's look, and there's massive disagreements um, among the black community. There are. Uh, um, you've, got, you've got black leaders endorsing Joe Biden, right. and then you've got black leaders who you know think everybody should get a cash payment. And, and, you know, so there's, there is a huge division as to what would best serve um, the black community. And again, it's one of those things where if you take the profit motive out of the situation and take the politics out of the situation and people trying to cover their own butts and get them own, their own selves ahead in their careers, I think we would come to different conclusions. Oh, 100%. Look, no group is monolithic in its beliefs. That's square one. So I've been following some of the internal community arguments. And, you know, here's the thing. Those are arguments that are going to happen, and it's for the community to have. It's not really for me to comment on those particular things because, obviously. Um, but but I do think something needs to be done, and I don't think that should be a controversial conversation. And the fact that we can't even have what that looks like as a conversation is what's really unfortunate because not enough not enough folks are out there agreeing that this needs to happen. So I was pleased to see that as one of the things on your uh, website. I thought that was a very, very brave and very good. And it, it, I shouldn't even have to say it's brave, right? But here we are. It's interesting because it's not, you know, my top three issues that we generally say, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, criminal justice reform. But there's always been this special section on my page about reparations just because it's personal to me. And whether or not it's controversial is makes no difference to me. It's It's you know, to not view it as the proper path to make people whole is just anti the, everything that I believe in. So w- again, it's not something that I'm going to argue about. We can debate how to do it. There, there's definitely arguments to be had as to how to do it. Right. But I would, I would suggest to anybody who's against reparations to go spend a considerable amount of time in some disenfranchised neighborhoods and talk yeah, to the 100%. people. Actually talk to the people and right. find out exactly what it is we're dealing with. It's not just lack of money. It's lack of complete infrastructure and ability. Right. There's no generational wealth. It's There's wealth, no- yeah. It's not and just so, income, it's the wealth that was never there to, to begin with. never there. They have nothing to build on. You cannot right. expect people to build on nothing. It, I agree. Um, it's You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any boots. And I think exactly. I think people also need to realize that the, that forms of racism like slavery uh jim crow laws all of these things have an economic component they are undergirded by capitalism right so there's no way that we can deal with only one side of that equation and not the other they both need to be dealt with and it seems fair to me that we do some sort of reparations for these things um I want to talk specifically about something going on in Florida right now as we speak. Uh, There's all of this news coming out right now about the COVID-19 underreporting that's going on in the state of Florida that DeSantis, there was a Miami Miami Herald piece that said that DeSantis was like blotting out information, not sharing it. Um, The State Department was only claiming that residents um, were being counted in those numbers. So if people were dying in Florida, but they weren't technically residents, they weren't being added to the the count. What, what are your thoughts on all of this? And do you have any, um, updated information on it? 
my knowledge was as of a couple of days ago, the woman who created the, I think she created the mechanism that's keep the database that's keeping track of the COVID, um, the cases and the deaths. And she was apparently fired because she wasn't willing to manipulate the data. Now, of course, they're saying she was fired because she was insubordinate. Yeah. <laughs> um, because usually management admits when they fire someone out of reprisal, usually yeah, they offer that right up. So <laughs> yes, um, indeed they do. <laughs> this is this is Occam's razor. Okay. So what is more likely that she got fired because she was not willing to comply, or it just so happens that she was insubordinate and they fired her after she said that she was unwilling to comply? So I mean, it's and none of it surprises me because look, there. Our governor is basically a miniature version of Donald Trump. In fact, they, they're buddies, they're friends. It's, you know, he's planning on serving him Florida on a silver platter in November. Yeah. And it's, it's a nice camaraderie. So nothing about fudging the numbers and censoring the data. I mean, at this point, that's just what I expect. That's not even, I'd be shocked if we got accurate information. Right. That's how I see it. So no, I'm not at all surprised. It makes complete sense. They obviously want to reopen because that'll screw labor. Now yeah. you now don't have people on employment because well, you could come back to work and risk your life. That's not on me. I'm not going to give you personal protective right. equipment or, or hazard pay, mind you. But we're offering you a job. So if you don't take it, that's on you. Now yeah. this and is so then they don't get unemployment. Yeah. Right. They don't even care. I mean, at this point, they must realize that even when they open back up, they're going to still see a minimum improvement in terms of customers. And, you know, you're still going to see people, you know, our usage is going to be down of everything. So it isn't even about getting their money. It's about cutting off the knees of labor. And, yeah. and, and that to me is blatantly clear. And so, again, I'm never going to support anything that is goes against labor. Like that's just... Uh, and really, I think that's for the most part, that that does tend to be a pretty um, red Republican mechanism is to pretty much cut the legs out from under labor. So it makes sense. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. That's exactly what's happening. This is all about the economy. And what I want to what I want to suggest to folks is if our economy is that fragile, that it's so fragile that a minimum drop in consumption is enough to destroy it, maybe we have the wrong kind of economy. And I think people really need to think about that. Also, I, I would like people to sort of think about the fact that oftentimes the decisions they make serves one group of people, the platonomy, and that transcends both parties. That's not just a left versus a right. It's, it's a this thing. And I think more folks need to be aware of that because they're getting screwed by these guys. These guys, the 1%, are just continually extracting more and more wealth from every other segment of the population. And at some point... It's gone beyond being solely immoral. It's entirely immoral, but it's untenable. And what happens when the entire thing just collapses on itself, which is where we're sort of headed at this point, I think. So, you know who I really dislike in that uh, area is Elon Musk. I don't know if you've been paying attention to him on Twitter as of yeah, yeah, him or Bezos or Gates or any of them. Basically, that's your oligarchs. Those are your little plutocrats yeah. that are sitting up there and selling us our own air back to breathe. So, you know, I think is, I'm the feeling that, Jen. They're selling us our own air back to breathe. That's exactly what they're doing. You know what? Well, it's 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 an original line, but it's not an original thought because it really comes from the Lorax. Did you see the, the movie oh, that was- yeah, like Dr. Seuss? Yes. So they're, the, the concept of the movie is they had taken away all the trees. And so this guy harnessed the ability to sell them their own oxygen. 
So that's, that's the Lorax, but that's how I see these people. They don't, I mean, Jeff Bezos is set to be a trillionaire by 2026. It's this is not, this is, this is capitalism imploding on itself. But what's interesting is, is that they don't acknowledge that if you don't have consumers with disposable income, you cannot perpetuate capitalism. Right. So at some point it will die on its own. And actually socialism is this is this post capitalistic world is yeah. what is socialist right? 100% thank you so much for saying that i try to i try to say that all the time cuz i want people to really understand that it's not it's not a post communist world per se it can also no. be a post capitalist world that's what a narco socialism is about right well the problem is is that you your your people like your elon musks and your jeff bezos of the world while it won't affect them you get to a level of wealth where you don't really need consumers anymore at this point. You really don't. I mean, if they got no, he cut doesn't. off. From- if, if, if he was not able to sell a single Tesla po- product again, he would still be wealthy and he'd be able to maintain his lifestyle right. for decades. Right. So for the top 1%, they really probably don't care about consumers and they're trying to suction every last bit of money. Out they, they this is just pure money at this point. Exactly. It is. But what's incredibly frustrating is their ability to convince the next 25% that 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 it's in their best interest right. to go along with that. Well, that next twenty five percent can't function without consumers. No, they cannot. You know, like that next rung down of wealth, right? So, so yeah, it's it's that is it's imploding. It's imploding. I agree with you, Jen. So I always say there's like there are two one percenters out there, and I'm so glad you brought this up. And uh, let's talk about this for a second. There's two groups of one percenters. There's the one percenters that are the one percenters. These are folks that have massive wealth accumulation. So we're not talking solely about income. We're talking about wealth. They don't even have to work. And their money just grows and grows and grows and grows. They might only be getting capital gains and and no income whatsoever. They might only have real estate holdings, whatever. So those are the one percent. And then there's the one per, the top one percent income earners, right? These aren't people that have anywhere near the amount of wealth that the Jeff Bezos do in the world, right? But they're in the top 1% of income earners. That's a totally different group. Those are the 25% you're talking about. So now we're talking about yeah. people that are making three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, right? Your upper middle class, your people that aspire, that think that if they just work harder, they could be Jeff Bezos. Those no, people. you are never even. Nobody in that one percent, that second one percent income group, are ever going to be Jeff Bezos. It's not possible. But they use that argument, as you're saying, to sort of string people along because they need this twenty-five percent to keep feeding the working class these lines and these lies because that's how they keep the system going. The minute the other 75% goes, fuck this, we're out, they're all in trouble, big time. You are so right on this. I just think we all have to keep reminding everybody that uh, we got to punch up. (laughs) You know, when you, anytime that somebody in, in any sort of leadership position is indicating to kick down, question that person immediately because that person is either purposefully lying or completely ignorant. <laughs> like, I mean, it's punch up you and anything else is just not going to work. That's right. That's right. I mean, look, you know, it's, it seems to me too that, well, I think it's changing. I think more people are becoming aware of this, which is good, but there's still a certain segment that's still like, no, eventually if I do the right things or they shame themselves, right. Or they feel ashamed. Like 
I must be struggling for a reason. I must have done something wrong. Maybe I went to the wrong college. Like I, there must be something I did wrong because I can't seem to get to this income level, right? But it's not. It's nothing that you did wrong. The system is 100% rigged against you. You do not have the same access to education. You don't have the same access to things like carried interest. There's a whole host of things that you will, your social starting place cannot be equalized. That's how rigged our system is at this point. So this idea that really, that actually the thing that upsets me the most is that, that there's no equality of opportunity left in this country. There's this, this idea this you know, birthed the American dream isn't even real at this point. We have barely any sort of mobility as far as of social standing. So thank you for attending my TED talk. <laughs> Yeah, no, but you know what? They have us fighting against each other for scraps. Yeah. We are That's we exactly are, right. That's exactly right. Fighting for scraps. And they are able to sell the upper peasants on this notion that it's the lower peasants that is the problem. And this has been going on forever, right? This is this is not news. This is like authoritarianism or plutocracy 101. Yeah. And so they have us all fighting amongst ourselves for scraps. And it's just very hard to get people out of that mindset that they do and tell them, uh, you deserve more. And this would be a very telling thing. Find your regular Joe Schmo person out in the world that is struggling to live, probably working three jobs and driving an Uber and they can barely make ends meet. And think of what would happen. How would that person be if they lived in, let's say, Denmark uh, with with the same level of income proportionate to proportionate Massive to difference? OK, yeah. so how would their life be? Would they have more peace? Would they have more enjoyment in their life? Would they have more freedom because they wouldn't be having to be stuck to stuff they don't want to be stuck to? So when you look at people that are like they think it's them, I very much think we need to urge people to say, well, or even if you lived somewhere, you know, like Costa Rica, because I would love to live there, but where where you have healthcare and you have this community infrastructure where even the people that are at the bottom of that of that economic status have this certain social safety net. And I would urge people to think, would you be fighting and struggling so hard to live if you lived somewhere else? And that's how we know that it's not them and it's the system. Indeed. I 100% agree with you. So Jen, if people want to donate to your campaign, where's a good place for them to do that at? Right here. Oh, look, see what happens. The hand goes in front of thing. Jen2020.com. <laughs> This is because I don't have a green screen. Um, Gen2020.com, we need, and we also really need volunteers to do phone banking and text banking. We need an army of people, especially now that we can't canvas. So right. that's been, it's, we are going to find out this year if grassroots campaigns can succeed without the ability to canvas. And, you know, we need help. So that's key. Look, yeah. I think your race is very important. There, there are a handful of races that are happening right now in the country that even though they're local congressional races, they have an impact on the broader party structure. So they're, they matter. So if folks, if you can help Jen out and you like what you're hearing, you should definitely um, contact her uh, campaign. And, and so they can do the, the dialing online. They can. Oh, it's so easy. We, okay. anybody does it, they do it from home. If you're not comfortable doing phone banking, there's text banking that we need help with. And it's so easy. And it's just, I, it's, it's, there's like an app for that. Like it's really simple. And we do, we need money. So if there's somebody out there that is willing, we ask for $23 for District 23. We're only a few months out. So please feel free to be a monthly donor. There's not that many months left. And we're entering our fourth quarter and we are heading up, you know, against a corporate monolith. 
and she is going to have all the mailers and all of the things. And those things are really expensive. And normally we would be out on the streets canvassing. So, you know, we, we need help. Does she still have a large chunk of loyal voters, no matter what she does? Is that still happening? Yeah, she does. And it's mostly our Democratic establishment in my district. And they know me. I know them. I've gone to their club meetings. I've made nice with those people. Um, I don't think they're going to purposefully work against me or hurt me, but they are definitely Team Debbie. And it isn't just in my district. She is actually very much a big portion of our state democratic party like it, a lot of our state democratic party it's she's extremely powerful in that and that group of people but each one of them still only gets one vote and there's a lot right. more of us than there are of them so that's right you know that's that's the truth i would think a good strategy would be to go after the folks that don't normally vote that's where i've been spending 99 percent of my time um, in and in neighborhoods that Debbie would probably not ever go in. Right. Um, not that she'd necessarily be welcome there either. I don't. <laughs> There's that. Well, I am very, very cognizant and conscious about when I approach communities, how I do that and which people I speak to and the leaders. And I have, it's like, I hate that concept of white patriarchy where we just yeah. sort of come into a neighborhood and say, this is what you need. Um, where I just, it's sort of racist when you think about it, it's, it's, you're removing this, you're removing not only this person's individual agency, but you're also telling them they're not smart enough to make their own decisions. I really hate that actually. I generally do. I do my best to find people that are very engaged in their community and have them basically dictate to me how we can help you. So I, I go to the association meetings. We go to the civic meetings. We go to all that stuff. When we say, how can we help you? And I mean it, you know, so it depends on the neighborhood and it depends on what they need. But yeah, I think that a lot of those neighborhoods are previously disenfranchised. They don't come out and vote. They they've probably never seen a congressional representative in their neighborhood in their lives. Right. And they've never been given a reason to vote. So we we are heavily in that. In Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on and talking with me, Jen. It's uh, been a good interview and good luck in November. Thank you so much for having me. What, what, pla- so now that I know that you don't use YouTube, what platform are you on? Um, we are doing the video exclusively on Rockfin. It's R O K F I N. It's, um, you should actually start sharing Rockfin stuff. So it's, it's a new startup, it's a co op, and it's got all kinds of media folks on there. So like Ron Placombe's on there, Graham Elwood's on there, oh, Status Quo cool. is on there, okay. uh, Combo Couch is on there. Uh, who am I missing? Well, if I can see a lot of, if, well, if more people move on there, then I could blow off YouTube. Yeah. So that's, that's the goal here. And then you, there's free content and then there's premium content. And what I like about the premium content is for $9 a month, you get access to everybody's content, not just one individual's. So, right. so that's there's nice. a, so it's, I mean, if you're looking for independent media, this is a great source. Um, they're trying to grow the platform out. They're good guys. They're based out of Austin. And they're instead of being like a top-down heavy corporation like Google is, they're they're structured the whole thing like a co-op, so all the creators get get paid out by what they put in. Oh, that's before. great! All right, well, I'll promote that for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. And so then, of course, my podcast is on Apple, iTunes, all the normal things. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really cool talking to you. Yeah, hundred percent, Jen. All right, we'll talk again soon. I hope. All right. Thanks, Tina. 